When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Deep Dives Podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA Podcast Network. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and back with me again, a frequent guest, but always welcome here on the Deep Dives feed, Stephen Glasky's back in the house. Stephen, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Nick, anytime I get to work with you, man, it's been an honor. I'm uh, I'm excited to, to be doing something draft-related. It just feels like with no more basketball, my weeks have been just full of family time and who wants that right like where's where's the basketball give me the give me the scouting yeah there's there's still plenty of basketball going on in sacramento but i guess a little bit less where you're at so you know i get it yeah i mean i i don't have an nba team anymore i gave that up for the sake of you know not having a bias but uh you know it's yeah uh, that's why that's why you did it i mean i mean in all honesty it is but you know there okay it, it, it makes it makes it more fun to just enjoy basketball at large. But, you know, I have my guilty pleasure for being a Razorback fan during the college season. So there's that. Well, this is one of the few times it's actually been enjoyable to be a Kings fan. So, you know, 90, 95 percent of the seasons, I totally get that perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like being a Rams fan in, uh, in football. You know, I have every 20 years or so I'm allowed to be happy. But every <laughs> season in between those 20 years is not very fun. Well, a player who is fun to talk about, who we're going to talk about today, someone who has had a very interesting season in the sense that everybody seemed to be waiting for, I think, more of a breakout than we ended up getting. But I think that also led to people being maybe more sort of disappointed in what we saw overall from this player. So, you know, I'm going to actually introduce them by name in a moment here, but it's been very interesting to sort of see the path of the season for Arthur Kaluma. But what was it about Kaluma that made you decide to write this article now? Well, in all honesty, it's just we're at the point of the season where we have a few names left. And I was surprised that nobody had written about him to this point of the year. So, you know, Nathan does a great job of keeping our article database up to date. And as the season has progressed, we've just kept having Kaluma on there. And you know, as as the week came down and I had a prospect that I'm supposed to be writing about, I was like, you know what, let's just go ahead and tackle this beast. Because I feel like coming into the season, there would have been a number of guys that would be kind of fighting and chomping at the bit to write about a guy who a lot of people were excited about coming into the season. But going back and looking at everything retrospectively at this point of the year was actually a pretty good exercise, I feel. So let's sort of deal with some of that stuff that you mentioned with how sort of the early season stock went for him. He, as you mentioned in the article, which is available on NoSealingsNBA.com, by the time you listen to this podcast, go ahead and check it out if you haven't already. But It's absolutely free, by the way. Absolutely free. See, that's the one part of the plug that I missed there. So thank you for covering my bases there. You were just setting me up. You were being a good host. I I try my best. But... Arthur Kaluma was 19th overall in the initial uh, draft IPOs that we do over at noceilingsmba.com, which is completely free, as Stephen already mentioned. 
And he's someone who I feel like I was a little bit lower on than the rest of the crew, but Mm -hmm. his stock has also fallen to the point where I, you know, where I was at the beginning of the season is actually higher on him than where it seems like most of the draft world is now. So again, he was 19th on that initial ranking. And in the most recent ranking, he came in at 50th out of the 50 players on the ranking. So it's been a very interesting sort of fall off the draft radar for him, despite the fact that he didn't have a terrible season. Like there were some players who, you know, we talked about last year as potential sophomore breakout candidates who, you know, didn't have the best second year. I mean, if we're comparing year two of Harrison Ingram to year two of Arthur Columa, right? You know, that's mm-hmm. a very different sort of beast. And yet he's fallen you know, to the point where he's probably likely to go late second round if he stays in this draft. So, you know, he didn't sort of impress in the way that I think many among the No Seamless crew were expecting that he would. But it is also interesting to see sort of how far his stock has fallen despite having a season that, you know, in many ways was better than what he put together last year. Yeah, and it's funny too, Nick. We we recently spoke about it, Maxwell and I, on one of the shows that we've done. And it's just really weird, like, to think that we came into the season with the expectation that Kaluma was going to be kind of a superstar in, in a lot of people's opinions. Like, there were a number of people that thought he was going to be the, the number one sophomore prospect within this class. And it just never bore out that way. But if we go back and just think about what what we thought about this team, Creighton, at large, was that a lot of people assumed that they were going to win the title because they had five guys, all of which were up for the preseason award for their particular position. So we're looking at Creighton, which historically speaking has been a very egalitarian style offense. They have five really good starters. They have some bench guys that I thought were going to be a little bit better. And Kaluma just never really had an opportunity to dominate. So I think when we're looking at this retroactively, it's important to remember what the expectation for him was compared to the team, because I don't think that those ever married up, but no one really ever acknowledged that, if that makes sense. No, totally. I mean, you know, it was a team that, again, as you mentioned, you had very strong projections heading in and. You know, they weren't the only team, you know, cough, North Carolina cough that, you know, people expected yes. to be great heading into the season because they were returning everybody and turn out to fall a little bit short. I mean, Creighton was still, you know, the sixth seed. They lost to, you know, eventual final two team San Diego State, right? It's not like they had a bad season by any means, but I think it's more just, you know, sort of similar to Kaluma in specific was the team in general in that they had really, really high expectations coming in and they were decent. They were solid, yeah. but they weren't anywhere near the sort of highs that people were hoping to see from them this year. Yeah, it's interesting that Kaluma served as like a microcosm for how Creighton's season went as a whole. And kind of diametrically opposed to that was the fact that Creighton seemed to be, it it seemed to do its best when they didn't really force Kaluma to be kind of its savior on a possession by possession basis. You know, they have two really good ball handlers. Um, well, they had two really good ball handlers <laughs> with Alexander and Nimart, who had since uh, entered the transfer portal. We don't know what Alexander is going to be doing. Baylor Shireman uh, transferring in through the transfer portal. We don't know what he's going to be doing either. And then Ryan Kautbrenner, who a lot of folks thought coming into the year was going to be the number one big man prospect. So again, the the way that the season bore out for the team at large and Kaluma at large, um, they share a lot of similarities, but Creighton, when they did improve, it seemed like they went away from Kaluma more, which didn't really do his uh, draft stock any favors throughout the year. 
So let's get into some of the analytics that you have here for Kaluma. And, you know, some of this stuff on the baseline, again, it sort of, you know, feeds into the narrative of what we've been saying, where, you know, he took some steps forward in some areas, some very important steps forward in some areas. He took some steps back defensively, especially by the numbers. I think, you know, the film looked pretty similar to last year, but certainly by the numbers, he took a bit of a step back. And then, you know, the decision-making stuff was trending in the right direction with his passing, with, you know, limiting turnovers, which, you know, if he's going to have more of a breakout, you know, either next season if he returns to school or if he's going to break his way into an NBA rotation, you know, next year or in the years to come, I think a lot of it is going to depend on teams being willing to trust him to make good decisions with the ball in his hands. So, you know, some definite positives there in terms of the analytics stuff, but again, you know, other than a pretty sizable jump in terms of his three-point shooting, nothing that really sort of jumps off the page as, wow, he's taken a massive step forward in this area. I would only counter that with the free throw rate. His ability sure. to, to that's get also to the free huge. throw You're line right. was, and, and that's a very important skill for a perimeter-oriented wing slash forward to have in their bag is to be able to put pressure on the defense, be able to get to your counters and get, free points at the free throw line. You know, that's very valuable skill, but you're right, Nick. Um, a lot of what I did in the article at the beginning with the analytics was I could just compare Kaluma to himself. And I think that that, Nick, you, you spoke earlier to the fact that he didn't have a bad year, which you're right. I mean, if you're just looking at his season at face value, it was a very fine year, but it just did not, it did not Roger up with what we thought he was going to do coming into the year. There wasn't like a, a starker or drastic improvement other than just some minor efficiency numbers and his ability to get to the free throw line. That was at, that's actually why I think a lot of people are kind of disappointed and why his draft stock took a hit is because when you're comparing him to himself, we automatically have it in our heads, Nick, when a player says, okay, I'm going to test the waters. I'm going to get some feedback. My name is buzzing. Let me just go back. And then I'll just automatically be presented an opportunity to be a first round guy, to be a lottery level talent. It's not as easy as a lot of people think, you know, progress, everyone says, what's the the cliche, you know, progress isn't linear. Um, it, and that essentially has been the case for Kaluma, you know, where again, the team did all right. He did all right, but there wasn't that drastic step forward other than just maybe two or three categories. Yeah, the free throw rate is very important, and I'm glad that you pointed that out and corrected me there because, you know, first of all, as the partial free throw truther, I do have to at least say it is a positive sign that in addition to his three-point percentage improving, that he also jumped from 67% to 74% on free throws. Yep. But, you know, his ability to get to the line more is, you know, definitely a huge thing for him, especially since the three-point shot is still like a work in progress. You know, again, at 31%, it's not like you're trusting him as a knockdown guy. So him being able to, you know, generate opportunities at the stripe is going to be huge for his offensive game as sort of the rest of the pieces develop around it. But I wanted to move quickly into a comparison that you made sort of the end of this analytics section where you compared Kaluma to Philip Rubraca, Tumani Kamara, and Enrique Freeman. Now, in that group of four, Kaluma was near the bottom in quite a few of those stats, which is, as you point out, not exactly a ringing endorsement. Now, the caveat, one of the caveats anyway, is that Rubraca, Kamara, and Freeman all have more 
experience than Kaluma. I mean, you know, yeah. Rebraka and Freeman are seniors, right? You know, they've been around college basketball for a while. I think this is actually year five for Rebraka, if I'm remembering correctly. So yeah, he's playing in the the Portsmouth Invitational Tournament. You know, like he he will be, and same right. thing for Kamara. I don't I don't remember seeing Freeman's name, but you're right. Like that's a lot of it's a lot of years of experience. Um, when when we're comparing him to or comparing those three to Kaluma. And, you know, that is that is a part of it, you know, for for the draft evaluation purposes. But the flip side is, you know, as you mentioned, Kamara is, you know, probably the most likely of the three that aren't Kaluma on that list to get an NBA look. But that's what we're talking about here. Right. Is get an NBA look, not like be someone who is a potential first round pick heading into the year in Kaluma, who's, you know, fallen down boards a bit, but is still you know someone who's more likely to go in the second round than to go undrafted and that's you know kind of the route that that Kamara is almost certainly going down and for Rebrocken and Enrique Freeman you know that would be they they would be you know punching up a bit to get to the point where they were you know getting undrafted free agent looks so it isn't a good sign for Kaluma that he falls into that group of four and he's the lowest of the four in many of the categories you put here. Yeah, and the reason that we have that group of four, it wasn't me just, you know, picking four random seniors, you know, from across the nation. You know, I ran a oh, query. Oh, good. That makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> yeah, I, I ran a query um, on Bartorvik. Everyone may have heard of it by now. Um, if you listen to NBA draft shows, you're probably really familiar with the Bartorvik database. Or if so you've I read ran... any of Steven's last, like, 17 articles. <laughs> <laughs> if you read any of my work this year. Um, and a lot of people do these queries, and I think it's a, it's a valuable exercise because it gives us an opportunity to compare – what players are doing this year to other years in uh, draft history. And then also against their peers, like that's what we're doing when we're evaluating prospects. We're trying to sort them out amongst the crowd and see how they stand out. And when I ran this um, query, I won't go through the entire da- database here, but those were four names that popped up, which is very interesting when you can stand out um, among the crowd through a, a long list of queries is pretty impressive. But the the problem is, Nick, when I look at the minutes percentage, right? He he ranked fourth out of four. BPM, fourth out of four. Offensive rating, fourth out of four. The highest that he ever ranked among that group of four was to be tied for second in steals percentage. Everything else was third or fourth, a majority of them. He's dead last in all those categories. Now, again, we can make the argument that, yes, they're against like he's being evaluated against players with more experience. But at the same time, if we're evaluating a guy as an NBA prospect, that that experience is going to be kind of held against him for quite some time, Nick, when we're looking at, you know, how we're going to separate him among college players. That's one level. But then when he gets to the NBA, he's also not going to be one of the oldest guys in the NBA. Like there's going to be a lot of people that he's going to be compared to. That's not going to stop for quite some time. And, Again, when I when I wrote my article, it's not really a ringing endorsement. Looking at that is just like a an interesting data point to say, whoa, like maybe we there's some considerations that need to be had when we're talking about him as an NBA guy. All right. So we are going to take a quick break and then we will dive deep into the specifics with Kaluma right after this. All right, so let's now get into the specifics on the deep dive that you did, and let's start out with the offense. So just sort of the overall stuff, as you mentioned, he ranks in the 48th percentile on offense overall. So, you know, again, pretty similar to a lot of what we've been saying throughout, where it's like, you know, he's 
had some areas on offense where he you know is better than others right ranging from the 26th percentile to the 73rd on sort of the general categories but it's the idea where he's had a solid season but hasn't been you know there are a couple of areas that we'll get into specifically where he's been pretty impressive but overall he's been solid but you know not spectacular and when we're talking about you know him improving or not improving his draft stock right that's a huge part of it yeah and again when i'm looking at the analytical stuff um on bartorovic that's just one aspect of it that i cover just like everybody else um that does draft work you're either on synergy or some other service um if if you're fortunate enough and we're on synergy and i'm looking at everything and i just I love to just take a quick glance at like a player's offensive profile. And I do the same thing defensively. And I just kind of come up with like a quick judgment, I guess, if you will, of how that player should be based on that profile. And Kaluma, his synergy numbers essentially just match the film, right? Like he just had a fine year. There's nothing that really stands out. The highest that he grades out in any offensive category that he has enough possessions to receive a grade from Synergy is in the transition at the 73rd, which is all very good, just like Synergy says. But you would like to see something higher than like the 50th percentile um, when you're looking at the half-court numbers. And then when you get more into specific numbers, with like the shooting, it's not so great. When you get to the post-ups, it's fine, right? But is Kaluma going to get drafted into the NBA and go right to work in the post? Probably not. When I'm looking at these play types that he's most likely going to be used in. I was pretty surprised to find out that like really only cutting is his primary skill set that he's going to be bringing to the, to the NBA. And it's, and he's not even really blowing, you know, the doors down in in that regard either. So we'll get into the cutting stuff later because that I think really is for me, very encouraging for his NBA future, but let's start off with the shooting stuff. And, you know, we've sort of mentioned it in passing, but we should, you know, sort of break it down in more detail. You know, if we're talking about things that were encouraging with this season for Kaluma, he did take a step forward as a shooter, yes. which, you know, he took a step forward from really bad to below average. But, you know, that step forward is a huge path on his, you know, developmental journey. I mean, just getting above 30% from three is actually a pretty far cry from where he was last year, right? You know, Absolutely. just, you know, under 27% from deep on pretty similar volume to what he put up this year. You know, it's not like this year he only took wide open threes. He actually took slightly more threes per game, 3.6 per game this year, 3.3 per game last year. So similar, but slightly higher volume from deep, but also a pretty sizable improvement percentage wise. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the whole partial free throw truther thing, he's also shooting better from the line. So, you know, more indicators that his touch on his jumpers really has improved. And that's going to be huge for him fitting into a role offensively at the NBA level. Yeah. And the big thing for him as a jump shooter, Nick, is how open is he when he catches a ball? And I, I feel like I highlight that pretty decently in the piece where there's a possession where Baylor Sharman is attacking on a pick and roll. Defense collapses on him. Kaluma's left open in the left corner. His shot, by the way, is is pretty, right? Like the motion yeah. is fine. It's just a little slow. So he needs like that extra time to really get the shot off. So when the defense is kind of selling out on Baylor driving, they leave Kaluma wide open in the clip that I highlight. And when he's open and he's hitting, um, I mean, Synergy grades him out in the 49th percentile on unguarded jumpers, which again is fine. It's not superb, but it's totally fine for a college jump shooter. Um, But we see whenever he doesn't get enough time to get his jump shot off, 
he resorts to jab steps and pump fakes and counters and things like that, which again, players can get away with that, but he doesn't really get away with it. He's in the 16th percentile, which ranks out as below average and shooting only 21% on guarded um, jump shots. As a player who's probably not going to get drafted and be asked to produce with the ball in his hand a lot, you're going to see a fair amount of guarded jump shots in the NBA. And whenever you're contested by, you know, again, older prospects, more experienced prospects, you're not going to be able to get away with the same stuff that you're um, getting away with at the collegiate level. And again, just not an encouraging number whenever we're evaluating him as a jump shooter. It is discouraging. I think the flip side, though, is that especially early on, he's not going to be guarded that tightly, right? I mean, part of the deal with him is, you know, you don't want him getting downhill. You don't want him getting to the line. You don't want him getting to the basket. So especially given that he's even still only in, you know, 49th percentile, right? Just barely below average at unguarded looks. Those I'm willing to bet are going to be the majority of his looks, you know, to start out at the next level because he hasn't really proven that teams need to tight, uh, to contest him that tightly beyond the three-point line. And given, you know, what he can do in terms of getting downhill, teams are probably better off, you know, leaving him open and letting him have that space. And, you know, if he knocks down a couple of those shots, teams can live with it rather than live with him getting into the paint and getting to the line. Yeah, his his ability to like transition, the reason that the number looks great is because it is, you know, like when he gets an open path to the lane, whenever he's playing off of a ball handler, there's a lot to be encouraged about there. But again, you know, in a wings league, like everybody's calling it, you know, if it's a wings league, there's a good possibility that if you're playing either the two, three or the four um, with his frame and his build, you're going to ask to you're going to have to be asked to, to spot up and he has improved percentage wise and if progress is linear there's reason to believe that he'll continue to do so and the free throw numbers and the ability to get to the free throw line also are a good indicator for his shooting ability now it just a little bit of concern there a little bit of a yellow flag i wouldn't call it a red flag but a yellow flag as a jump shooter yeah i mean i think it's more just a sign that you know it's well, I mean, clearly it's an area that he needs to continue to work on, right? I mean, you know, yes. that 31% is not going to cut it given the rest of his game. But again, you know, from where he was last year, right, where he was just terrible on all, all you know, open looks from deep, yep. you know, he's he's improved in the area that's, you know, critical for him to improve in. I think the, you know, the flip side of that is if he was taking a lot of, you know, contested threes, that might almost be a worse sign in the sense that, you know, he's making bad decisions, right? He's chucking up contested threes yeah. when he's not that good at making them. Yet you know, the fact that he's got a much higher volume on the unguarded looks is is a positive sign. And the fact that he's gotten to the point where he's averaged them is, again, you know, it doesn't look that impressive on paper, but it is a pretty big step forward from where he was last year. Exactly. You know, you want to see improvement as a player year by year, no matter what level of competition you're at. So again, like you just said, Nick, the fact that he is taking those strides to improve as a, as a shooter uh, is a good thing, you know, and that's something that we should applaud, but we also, we also need to address the, the, um, the concern that we have in that area of his game. So let's move on now to some of the pick and roll initiation stuff. And this is an interesting one for Kaluma because on the one hand, it's not the kind of play that he's probably going to get that often. All right, you mentioned already, you know, he's not going to be like your primary scorer, primary guy you have on the ball. But especially when you add in, you know, his improved shooting and also his improved decision making, 
it is interesting to see how much of an opportunity he would get to run sort of secondary pick and rolls in the NBA. Probably not that many, but yeah. you know, he had some really positive signs on those overall slightly below average 43rd percentile, but it's something that he can do, right? You know, rather than just he gets the ball and he's just sort of frozen with no idea what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that is a plus. I am curious how much you think he will be running pick and rolls at the next level. Well, considering that he was probably the fourth option to run pick and rolls on his college team, it's probably going to be pretty slim. Like I would imagine yeah. on a bench unit, he's probably third or fourth to be able to do that. But I did want to highlight pick and roll because it's interesting that he on only 39 possessions that he was graded out for uh, per synergy, he was still average at that, right? And we we were talking about how average is kind of a, a, a down check for him this year. The fact that he can operate in a pick and roll uh, with a with a rim diving big man like Kaluma is huge, right? Like that's something that he could be trusted. And if he's going to be running pick and rolls in the NBA, the play is probably broken down somewhere. And again, if you have improvisational skills uh, at the NBA level, that's something that can travel. And that's like an interesting little wrinkle that a team could trust you in maybe like three, four pick and rolls as opposed to four, five or, you know, two, three screens where you're keeping it perimeter oriented and you can be trusted to put the ball down on the on the deck for a couple dribbles and make a good read. So I was pretty encouraged on that, although, again, the the, pro- the proficiency, the the efficiency isn't as high as what you want to see. It was very encouraging to go through that film dive and see that he was capable of doing it in small stretches. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's not that he's going to be relied upon to do this a lot, but it's also the kind of thing where if he gets, you know, the ball in the kind of situation where, you know, it's a desperation situation, right? Like, you know, eight seconds left on the shot clock, nothing going on with the offense. You know, you can trust him to run a quick ball screen and say, you know, get the ball back to the primary initiator or, you know, kick the ball out to the wing, right? It's the kind of thing where you don't want him doing that all the time, right? But if he has to, there are definitely players who, you know, are his sort of profile, right? Like six, seven, three, four type, maybe, maybe a two, depending on how you see him, but, you know, wing types who you can trust to make a simple play with the ball in their hands, right? You know, maybe we're not going to expect him to, you know, split the defense and, you know, throw a Luka Doncic style, you know, cross court pass as a, you know, wing type. Right. But the idea being that he's someone who, unlike some other players on the wing, if he gets stuck with the ball in his hands in a bad spot, you know, that he's going to do the best that he can with it rather than just sort of freeze up and make a bad play. Yeah. He doesn't have a, a deep bag when it comes to his handles or anything like that, but Again, I've, I highlight a couple. I highlight a play where it looks good, and I highlight a play where he kind of does the exact thing, same thing, and it gets blocked. But the thing is, is that he's capable of attacking the basket, and that's a skill that I don't think a lot of people um, are are looking at him at, at doing at the next level. But again, when those plays break down, it's also a good indication of like what he could do as a DHO, um, mm-hmm. you know, handoff guy. You know, if if he decides to hand the ball off to somebody who's going to shoot right off the roll. Great. If um, he keeps it because he sees an advantage and he can take a couple of dribbles to the, to the basket and get a layup in also great. You know, having, having the ability to kind of freestyle with the ball in your hand is never a bad thing. Yeah. The DHO game thing is huge. And, you know, I've gotten even more of an appreciation for DHO game this year with, you know, Sabonis, Herter, Keegan Murray, all those guys having fun in Sacramento than I ever had before. You know, of course I always have to bring it back. I always have to bring it back to the Kings at some point, right? But 
It wouldn't be yeah. deep dives if we didn't bring up the Sacramento Kings. <laughs> there we go. Light the beam. Exactly, light the beam. But you know, the idea there being again, you have so many more options when you can just throw someone like Kaluma out there and say, okay, you know, when there's a situation where you need to read and react quickly, we trust you to, you know, make a good decision quickly, right? You know, take two dribbles and pass the ball, keep it moving, right? You know, get the ball, swing it to the guy in the corner, you know, or, you know, get the ball, quick screen at the top, you know, pass to the perimeter to, you know, the open man, like hockey assist type thing, right? It's the kind of thing where if he's out there on the court, you are trusting that, you know, again, maybe he's not going to be, you know, your primary playmaker type or anything close to that, but if the ball gets into his hands, he's going to make a decent decision with it. There are a lot of players who you can't say that about. And, you know, that's a real positive when we're talking about someone who is probably going to have to earn their way into an NBA rotation rather than just sort of being gifted minutes early on. Exactly. And being able to keep a play alive means that the defense has to defend longer. And that's Mm -hmm. always a bad thing in the NBA. Like the longer defense has to, you know, keep tabs of their individual assignment while maintaining their scheme is the, NBA is just kind of slanted more towards offense. So if you have like these wings, these forwards that can can keep a play alive, that frees up an open jump shot somewhere, or maybe somebody else cutting towards the basket and Kaluma can certainly make an easy pass out of a out of a good read and, and a simple opportunity. So let's move on to the topic that I've been waiting to talk about for almost half an hour now, his cutting, which is yeah the clearest NBA skill for him. And I think fits really nicely with the rest of what we've been discussing with him, where unlike with, you know, some of these other skills where it's like, he's, you know, solid, he's average. He's, you know, going to do well enough to keep his head above water in that regard. His cutting is, you know, really where I see, as you mentioned, you know, it's the most NBA ready skill he brings. And that's, I think really going to be key to him sticking around is, his ability to be an exceptionally effective off-ball player without really being all that great of a shooter, right? You know, he mm-hmm. is his shot is developing. And, you know, again, it took some really positive strides forward this season, and I don't want to discount that by any means, but his best value without the ball in his hands right now is his cutting, his ability to, you know, you mentioned earlier, right? He's like the fourth option for running pick and roll on his own team, which, you know, says something about his future as an on-ball guy. But the flip side of that is... He has had a ton of opportunities to find his way into baskets, you know, around guys on his team who have the ball in their hands more often. And that's the kind of thing that is going to be really important for him as an NBA player. Just that ability to read and react as a cutter, right? You know, see that the ball's on the other side, right? And, you know, dive in from the weak side to the rim, get an easy pass, easy layup, easy dunk, whatever, you know, easy opportunities to get buckets. And given that, you know, there are somewhere ranging from concerns to it's fine about the rest of his offensive game, that's going to be huge for his ability to earn his way into a rotation. Yeah. And I think too, that when we, when we talk about how these play types are grouped on synergy, it it can be kind of misleading because for synergy, they say that he's only cut on 34 possessions, right? But if you look at the mini spot up, uh, plays that are grouped there he's kind of spotted up away from the ball but he eventually makes his way to the basket and then gets the ball in his hand right so the synergy grouping can be a little bit weird but even on these only 34 possessions that he's credited he went 60 percent on his scoring within that play type scoring on scoring 1.176 points per possession you know that that's huge and then if you look at the miscellaneous plays the 
the um, off-screen plays, and then the uh, again the spot-up opportunities. A lot of those spot-ups are just designed to keep the floor open. That way he can have as many lanes as he needs to to find his way to the basket. And the play that I bring up on the uh, the article that I dropped on NoSailingsNBA.com where you can subscribe for absolutely free and get content delivered to your inbox five days a week, from what I hear. Um, <laughs> rumor has it. Rumor has it. The, the play that I have in that article is uh, a good indication of his instincts to find his way to the basket, but also it highlights his athleticism, which really hard to talk about athleticism in a piece and not post like 12 clips as opposed to like one or two. So I always <laughs> try to sneak some clips in there that point to the athleticism. And this play is beautiful because uh, Andrew Nemhart dribbles his way up the floor with the ball. And then, you know, the standard play where it's not really a horn set because it's um, above the uh, free throw line and the elbows, but Kaluma and Kalkbrenner are up to the three-point line and they're setting a screen. Nimhard can kind of pick his poison, whichever one that he wants to attack. He opts to go off the screen set by Kalkbrenner. What ends up happening on the opposite side of the floor is that Baylor Shireman sets a back screen for Arthur Kaluma and the Xavier defense has no chance of stopping it because Kaluma just takes a great line to the basket and with the free lane and his bunnies, like he can get up and he converts on the play. And it wasn't even, it wasn't a bad pass by Nimhart, but it certainly wasn't like, it wasn't like one of those lobs where it accidentally goes in whenever <laughs> the, uh, the uh, lob threat uh, mistimes it. Uh, but Kaluma is able to grab it, recenter and finish the play. And again, that points to how smart of a cutter he is and how athletic he is as a forward. Yeah, his athleticism is something that we haven't particularly talked about, but is crucial to mention. So I'm glad that you did bring it up, you know, even though I failed yeah. to bring it up in the first 33 minutes. You know, we can we can get to the point here where we're getting to you. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. That's the first time anyone's ever forgiven me. But, you know, the do we need to stop and talk about that or do you? No, we definitely do not. Uh, okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the the idea here. Yeah. You mentioned as well, sort of the miscellaneous plays and, you know, some of the spot ups that turn into cutting really, you know. That to me just indicates, you know, something that we've been saying over and over again, which is Kaluma has a really good knack for turning a broken play into something or not even yep. just a broken play. Right. But, you know, a stagnant play where, you know, things are kind of moving along, but, you know, there's no great opportunity. You know, Nemhart's sitting at the top of the key trying to figure out something to do with it. And Kaluma can generate offense for himself out of those opportunities. And that's, yep. again, you know, in terms of some of the other skills, right? Like if he really continues his development as a shooter in a really positive way, then that'll be great for his NBA development. If, you know, let's just say he decides to return to Creighton for another year and he gets a ton of opportunities with the ball in his hands. And it turns out that actually when he gets more opportunity, he is really great as a pick and roll initiator, right? You know, that's great for mm -hmm. his stock going forward. But if we're talking about, okay, what does Arthur Kaluma do next year on an NBA team, right? And the answer to that question is, you know, he's a project defensively, but with really great athletic tools and size on the wing, you know, 6'7", 225, you know, bulky dude with, you know, really great speed and hops, right? You can mold the defensive piece out of that, but you're molding, right? You know, he's a, yeah. more of a project on the defensive end. If you're talking about what does Arthur Kaluma do at the next level right away, it's create something out of nothing with cutting. It's, you know, turn his spot up looks into a dive to the rim that generates an easy dunk. It's finding ways to be, you know, like 
a really effective fourth or fifth option on offense. You know, maybe not getting a lot of the ball himself, but turning bad plays or, you know, not great plays into really easy opportunities in the basket. No, absolutely. And I think, too, that the cutting, uh, you, you spoke to his ability to kind of like find his way to the basket whenever a play breaks down. I can't tell you how many plays that I watched in preparation for this piece to where I saw Nimhart or I saw uh, Alexander or Shireman attacking the basket, um, not able to get their shot up. And then their kind of Hail Mary play was to throw the ball to Arthur Kaluma. And although that he wasn't the, the best at converting on, on jump shots or broken down, um, you know, off the dribble jumpers or anything like that, he was able to come down with the ball more times than not because of that his athleticism. And he was also able to, whenever the defense is trying to recover because their ball handlers did such a great job of maintaining their dribble underneath the rim and the dribbling across the baseline and finding Kaluma cutting to the line is because he knows how to cut and they know how to find him. And that was kind of the the encouraging part about the the film dive with him is that he just knows when to make a play to the basket whenever chaos happens. And it, it seemed like Creighton needed him to do that quite a bit this year. And, you know, we talk about ball watching a lot on the defensive end as a negative thing, right? But, you know, with Kaluma, it's almost weirdly sort of a positive thing for him on offense. That makes no sense, but I'll explain it <laughs> in a moment. What I mean I by that essentially is that he's not someone who's parked in the corner sort of paying attention but not really waiting to see if the ball swings his way, right? Like, if there's mm-hmm. a chance, he will see it and he will take it. You know, he's not going to miss an opportunity because, you know, he was sort of parked in the corner, you know, being a decoy, right? Like when he is a decoy, he is looking for ways to turn that sort of decoy into a positive for the offense. And if it's not, you know, it's because he's reading the play and saying, okay, actually, you know, we need to clear the lane for Nemhard and Kalkbrenner to run this pick and roll. So it's actually really important for me to just, you know, stand on the wing and look sort of threatening out here, right? It's the kind mm-hmm. of thing where... You know, he's not going to miss opportunities very often. And that I'd like to be able to say that about more players, but unfortunately that isn't always the case. And it really is the case with Kaluma. Yeah, the way that you're describing it is like his motor's always on even whenever he's, you know, he's in park, right? It's like when you train (laughs) a little terrier dog and you have your treat and you're taking steps back away from him and you're like, wait, wait. And you just see him just kind of sitting there and they're twitching and they're bugging (laughs) out. And then as soon as they get the signal to that, they can go and get the get their treat. They they make a line for it and they're super excited. Same thing with Kaluma when he sees a play breakdown and his teammate has a dribble live. He has that same wide eyed and like enthusiasm to make a cut to the basket because he knows that the defense is in a compromised state and he could, he's more than willing to take advantage of it. Oh, that is the best analogy we've ever gotten in this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no, it's 10 out of 10. Well, I appreciate that. I am uh, I have a, I have a background in raising dogs. So, you know, there's that. Well, that's fun fact about Steven that I had not known until yeah. literally two seconds ago. <laughs> I know that a lot of people are impressed by that. You know, I'm, I'm more than a uh, podcaster and scout. I also am experienced with the uh, training dogs. So. Yeah, every, everybody knows that about you. <laughs> Everyone knows this. This is old news. Yeah. <laughs> so let's now get into, we went from the most positive part of Kaluma's game, in my mind, to a bit of a struggle, which is, you know, yeah. when we're talking about the defense with him. Now, you mentioned that it's, you know, often a bad idea to sort of use analytical metrics solely as evidence to indicate that a player is either good or bad on defense. But 
at a certain point where there's smoke, there's fire, right? And there's a lot of smoke when it comes to the synergy defensive numbers for Arthur Kaluma. Yeah, so you'll you'll hear both crowds, right? Like you'll see, you'll hear people say, "Well, the the the, the numbers are just indications of film," and then you'll say that. The numbers don't mean anything. You got to watch the film. And I try my best to aggregate from all areas of a prospect's game. And I also understand that when I'm looking up synergy defensive numbers, that that's not like an all-encompassing perfect measurement of how a player does. But again, when I'm looking at every play type and all of them are saying like nothing but bad things, that's not very good. And then defensive stats also boil down to how a team performs in a lot of ways. So maybe Creighton not having like the best defense plays a part of the, plays a part of that. But we also see like the steals and block percentages, like the things that Kaluma can control. They have kind of fallen down a little bit as well. When you look at his uh, freshman to sophomore campaign. So there's a lot of things and I didn't even include any film, right? Like, because I, you know, just, I'm going to let these three paragraphs kind of do the talking for me here. But there was evidence from his freshman year that he is a better defender. And I feel like the scheme kind of allowed for it and the personnel allowed for it a little bit more last year as well. So maybe there is reason to believe that he can be like just an average defender, so to speak. And I think that his best defensive skill set is kind of being like a weak side uh, rim deterrent. I wouldn't even say like rim protector, but maybe someone who can kind of muck things up a little bit. He's not really great at face guarding a lot. He's got strength to, I think, kind of play across the positional spectrum to where he um, he can help when people want to back him down. He's not like barbecue chicken or anything like that, but he's just is kind of the same thing on offense. He's just like, okay, at certain areas. There's nothing that he's really like beating the doors down on. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the steal and block rates, and I've talked about it to the point where I'm sure everybody who listens regularly is sick of me talking about it, of how well steals rates translate from non-NBA levels to NBA levels. And, you know, sometimes defenders who get a ton of steals get a ton of steals because they're gambling all the time, and it's not always the best defense. But, you know, if you're not generating those turnovers at all, then, you know, that's that's the kind of thing where, you know, it's like, yeah. okay, there's no, you know, parsing the numbers when there are no numbers to parse, right? Like, if he was averaging two steals a game and he was doing it because he was making terrible gambles on every play, then that would be the kind of thing where, you know, you have to look into it more and be like, okay, is this, you know, say, someone who I know we're both big fans of, Demar Hodge, right? Someone who's just yeah. absolutely, you know, or Case and Wallace, if we're talking, like, higher up the sort of prospect hierarchy ladders of guys who get a ton of steals while playing good defense, right? If you're not getting the steals at all, you don't have to parse the idea of, oh, is he getting all these steals because he's gambling? He's like, no, he's just not generating turnovers at all. And, you know, given that he's not some sort of stalwart defensively in any of these other areas, it is more concerning for me that he doesn't have those sort of box score numbers because, you know, on the one hand, yes, those are there are box score numbers, right? You know, it's not necessarily indicative of what you're seeing on the film, but the flip side is, you know, again, if you're generating a turnover, that is a huge benefit for your team, right? You know, it's incredibly obvious point to make, but it's an area in which Kaluma is not contributing. And given that he's not just, you know, a lockdown guy who is, you know, maybe not generating turnovers, but is keeping his man, you know, off the score sheet, it's it's even more of a concern for me than it might be with a prospect who 
was better at locking guys up, even if they weren't necessarily high turnover generators. Yeah, and we and he's even got guys on his own team that are kind of they represent those the steals and the block rate in very different ways. Like Trey Alexander is a is a pretty good isolationist defender, and I think that that's a big part of his intrigue as a draft prospect. And then Ryan Kalkbrenner, although he's a little bit frail, he's he's a pretty solid rim protector at the college level, right? And they both have numbers, and they both have um, play types that suggest that, where Kaluma doesn't really have that working in his favor at all. I think that the block percentage last year was around like just over two, and then this year it's like gone down a little bit. So he's, I would say he's like a respectable college defender. But again, we're we're not drafting respectable college defenders and respectable offensive um, play playmakers either right like you you have to have something that you can hang your hat on as a draft prospect and I just feel like he is just very fine in a lot of areas on both sides of the ball this year now to bring it back around to something more positive there is one number in here that I think is actually a real positive for Kaluma so I want to talk about the I want to talk about that more we talked about his pick and roll play on the offensive end but Mm -hmm. defensively he ranked in the 74th percentile against pick and roll ball handlers and that I think is the biggest encouraging sign for his defense I mean especially at 6-7 you're going to run into a lot more 6-7 6-8 6-6 ball handlers at the NBA level than you are at the college level so that you know gives me some real confidence that if he's stuck onto a bigger playmaker type that he can do well at controlling those plays. Now if we're talking about you know the rest of his defensive numbers it's not as great but if we are going to pick out something that is a positive for him I do think that you know his play against pick and roll ball handlers is something that he would see a lot more of defensively at the next level especially given how important pick and roll is in the modern NBA. So that's a positive sign for his defense that, you know, stands out a bit in terms of the rest of the sort of not exactly all that positive mismatch of his defensive numbers. Yeah. And I think that what really gets him going in that specific play type is that there's more physicality involved. And I think Kaluma welcomes that, right? Like he's not, he's not um, contact adverse. And I think that he kind of welcomes that whenever it does happen. So again, there are certain plays certain college basketball players that he did very well against. And when you get closer to the basket, I feel like that's where he's more comfortable. But in those NBA pick and rolls, those are going to be like way above the top of the key, like way outside, like in a bigger, a bigger lane with better ball handlers, better, you know, stronger, faster players and less time for him to recover. So although that he is showing great signs of that at the college level, uh, I, I wouldn't imagine that he would be able to keep in front of like a lot of ones and twos, maybe even some threes. And I, again, you know, very fine in, in a lot of areas defensively and just something that he could use to build upon given the right circumstance with another year of development, in my opinion. And again, you know, we're talking about him building on things, right? Well, we're talking about the offense, you know, especially with the shot, there's been a pretty clear sign of positive development there. Yep. With the defense, I mean, you mentioned it already, right? Like, if anything, he took a step back defensively this year. You know, certainly didn't make any notable strides forward. And the flip side of that, though, is he does have the athletic tools, right? And, you know, we we could sit here all day naming the number of NBA players who had all the athletic tools to figure it out defensively and never did, right? But, you know, there are a few positives in Kaluma's favor. You know, first of all, all of the effort indicators are there for him, right? So it's like if you're going to bet on someone figuring it out and putting in the work defensively, he's definitely going to put in the work defensively. 
and he does have the physical tools. But again, you know, especially given that he did take some encouraging steps forward offensively, even though the sort of end result was pretty similar to last year, the defense, you know, we didn't see any strides forward from him in that regard. And that's, that's concerning, especially given that, you know, his stock has fallen because he didn't take a bigger leap offensively. The fact that I'm talking about, well, at least he made some development, positive developments offensively and can't really say the same about his defense. That's again, not a good sign. Yeah. And again, you know, a lot of these uh, numbers are team specific and while he did have Trey Alexander and Ryan Kalkbrenner, I would say that Creighton's defense this year wasn't where, where they were hanging their hat at night, you know, like they, they were very much so an offensive uh, oriented and a focused team. And I think that that reflects again, you know, it's interesting that Kaluma has just been the microcosm of, Creighton season at large. And I feel like if you look at how he's done offensively and defensively this year, it's a pretty good reflection of how Creighton did at large. So one last thing before we wrap up here, what are your thoughts on what Kluma should decide in the coming days? Do you think that he should decide to declare for the draft, stay in the draft? Do you think he should maybe go back to school for another year of seasoning? Because you know, at the beginning of this past season, it seemed like he was returning for his sophomore year for that seasoning, and that didn't mm-hmm. quite go the way anybody expected to. Do you think he should just declare now and capitalize on the fact that he's probably still going to be a mid to late second round pick and not risk his stock falling further next year? Or do you think, you know, the fact that Nemhard is entering the transfer portal and Trey Alexander might also declare for the draft and get picked probably ahead of Kaluma mean that it would be better for him to go back to school, get a bigger offensive role, see what he can do with it. Yeah. So for a player like Kaluma, who's already done it once and it not really work in his favor, um, again, not knowing anything about what he like him and his family need or anything like that. You know, if we're talking specifically just basketball wise, it looks like there's a lot of people that believe that he's going to get drafted this year. And I know that there are also a number of players that are, have already announced that re- they're returning. I don't think that that's going to stop. I think that there are going to be some other prospects that I have ranked ahead of him that are going to come back. If he can find his way in and work his way into a second round this year, I, I think that that would be a good play for him. If he comes back to college, I don't know if Creighton is the the place for him to really focus on how he can improve specifically as a prospect, because I think that we've seen Creighton over the years. It's very team friendly style play. We've already seen Kaluma show success in that area. Maybe if he can get to, uh, you know, a team where he can have some more isolations and things like that kind of show off some strengths that maybe he just wasn't able to show off at Creighton. That might be something that, um, that he could consider. But if, if I'm him, I've already seen myself, you know, kind of get some feedback, come back, and see my draft stock fall, if I could still get drafted this year, I'd do it because I don't know if I want to kind of put myself through that same type of position next year. That might, so some people might say that you're running away from the work, but you're also being very smart. You know, if you can, if you could get drafted and then get drafted and continue to work in the G League or wherever you go from there. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think, you know, either he should declare for the draft or try and transfer because, the complementary skills that I think are what makes him a potential NBA player, he highlighted those to every degree you could hope for this season at Creighton. And then the question is, you know, do you want to see more for him from him on the ball for him to be someone you consider drafting? You know, 
even with Demhart and Trey Alexander leaving, you know, as you mentioned, Creighton is not the kind of offense where they're just going to ISO Arthur Kaluma every play, you know, no matter how it goes, right? No matter how they do the transfer portal, whatever happens heading into next season. So with that in mind, if you're Kaluma, I think, you know, the whole deal is you've essentially proven, all right, look, I have these great complementary skills that if my shooting continues to develop and I can figure out a few more things defensively, then an NBA team can say, rely on me to be like a solid ninth, 10th man, right? And then you know, if he continues to expand his game from there, then maybe he has a higher ceiling than that. But I think ultimately him being more off the radar, like another year sort of trending further away from the draft radar is going to be a lot worse for him than just saying, you know what? I'm probably going to get taken in the 40s or 50s is worth it for me to declare and just see how it goes. Yeah, and again, once you make the NBA and you start getting, you know, different facilities, different coaching, different training, things like that, who knows what can happen once you get drafted? That's just the first step of your journey. And again, you know, if Kaluma can can find his way into people buying in on the promise of him and things like that, I would advise him to to try to do that and see what he can do moving forward, you know, because like you mentioned earlier, he it's not a not a question of work ethic and he has because of his work ethic, he has improved in some areas of his game. I think that he's capable of doing that again. It's just a matter of, do you want to improve in college or do you want to try to make a little bit more NBA money and, and test your hand at being a pro? All right. Anything else you want to cover here before we wrap this one up? Uh, no, man. Just uh, thanks so much for having me on. You know, by the time everyone is listening to this, this piece will have dropped over at no ceilings, NBA.com for absolutely free. Uh, we're just, there's a lot of stuff going on in the works uh, for the draft deeper side of the house. And I know that we also have a lot of stuff going on for no ceilings at large. We, we got a lot of, you know, interviews and, and projects and things like that coming down the line, man. So this is a fun time of the season. I'm excited for, for the next little phase of the cycle. All right. Well, he is Stephen Glaspie. You can find him on Twitter at Stephen G hoops. You can find him on the Draft Deeper podcast, and of course, you can find his article on Arthur Kaluma over at NoSealingsNBA.com, totally free. Again, by the time you are listening to this, it will be good to go. So definitely check that out if you haven't checked that out before listening to this podcast. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and I will be writing later in the week. By the time this comes out, I will be writing the day after this podcast releases We'll probably be doing another edition of Editor's Notes, but don't quote me on that. I will definitely be writing for Thursday, but not 100% sure if it'll be Editor's, editor's notes, notes or a more specific. Editor's Notes. Okay. Editor's seems like seems like we've got one fan for Editor's Notes, so I will may well be going with that. But in any case, that will be up the day after this podcast releases. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback about the Deep Dive podcast specifically, you can contact me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.